Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Thank you for that, Brian. I really appreciated that. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Mark chapter 12. If you prefer to flip in your Bibles, if you uh, happen not to have brought one with you today, you can look up on the screen. Mark chapter 12, we're going to look from verse 28 to 34. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 34. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you'll know that since the start of 2008, one of the things I've been saying over and over is the importance of committing ourselves to taking next steps. You will hear that phrase over and over at our church, and I hope that more than getting sick of it, one day you'll have a eureka moment and begin to understand why it's so important to keep taking another step, one foot after the next. Last week in particular, told you about how you're going to grow old, broken, weak, and then you'll die sooner than you can possibly imagine. That's a feel-good sermon of the year. And we're just highlighting the point that old age and death come so fast, you literally don't know what hits you. And because our time on earth is so short, in fact, God's word tells us it's like a vapor, a mist that appears in the morning. And by the time you finish breakfast, it's gone. It's that short. And that's why the life that sits still is a life that's already over in many respects. It is so important that you keep walking in the directions you believe God has called you. Because if you stop walking, you have already finished. Now, we've hopefully impressed that upon you. But listen, we haven't spoken a lot about the direction. And when you talk about next steps, a thinking person will ask, well, where am I supposed to aim those next steps? It's a good idea to stay in motion, but you can move towards wrong places, can't you? And so we want to think in in terms at our church over the next few months, uh, uh, weeks or months, about where we're aiming those next steps. And there's a million ways you can answer the question, where am I supposed to go from here? What am I supposed to be aiming my energies at? But we want to answer that, that question simply according to three key relationships that we believe God has called every Christian to. And I think that helps us. You know, you, you can be overwhelmed with the burden, the responsibility of following Christ. But really it boils down to three key relationships. The first is the one you have with your God and Savior. The second is the one you have with fellow Christians. And the third is the one you have with the world around you. Really, outside of those three relationships, I can't think of anything else that we're truly responsible for. Everything else seems to fall into those relationships. And so we want to borrow the language of Paul from last week, this or two weeks ago, of straining forward, of not just sitting still, but pressing on and straining ahead towards something that's in front of us. And using that language, we want to frame these three relationships in terms of three directions we want to reach in. I love that word reach because it's on my toothbrush and I, I see it every day. It reminds me, life is going after something. You know, if you want it, You have to start making some moves to go towards it. It isn't as if things just get downloaded into our lives while we sit passively. Every good thing God has in store for us is gotten ultimately through a partnership between His grace and our obedience, isn't it? And so I want, if you guys can pull up that slide, I wanted to show you something you'll be, I hope you'll get used to seeing a lot at our church. And that is reaching up in our relationship with God 
and reaching across in our relationship with our fellow Christians and reaching out in service and love to the world around us. Very soon when we get some of the uh, technical glitches out of the way at our printers, we're going to see those on nylon banners. Yet again, another set of banners. But this time, I hope you'll understand, this is meant to help you understand where all of your energies as a Christian are to be aimed. They're to be aimed in these three directions as you reach into and after those key relationships in your life. And so the first one that we're going to look at is reaching up in our vertical relationship with God. And you can shut off that slide. And let's look at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. By the way, I, I totally appreciated our praise team this morning. Did you guys really appreciate them? I, I love our praise team. And I don't know how they get their hands and fingers to work in cold weather like this. I'm having a hard time moving my pages around up here. If you're really cold... Shuffle a little closer to the person sitting next to you. This, this week, I'll give you permission to do that little bit of shade in us there. <clears throat> Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 34, really speak to the importance of this vertical relationship we have with our God. Listen to what it says. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered them wisely, or answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I wish I could give a whole sermon on that last line. <laughs> after that, no one dared to ask. There's some incredible psychology wrapped up in that last sentence there. But I want you to notice what, what Jesus says. This is an, a fascinating exchange Jesus has with somebody. You know, the scene that this scribe walked into, which prompted the question, was that Jesus was doing a little bit of sparring with some of the religious leaders of his day. And they were throwing all these questions at him, and there was a sense that, wow, they're impressed that this guy gives some pretty good answers. Have you ever walked into a conversation like that where where it sounded like some guy was holding court, and everyone seemed to be paying rapt attention to what he was saying, and when you listened, the guy was pretty smart, or the, the lady, was she just had answers, and you felt people were drawn to the truth. And Jesus talked like that with people. And it was amazing to listen to it. And so this scribe came up and said, wow, you're pretty good, I got one for you. You handled these little lesser questions pretty well. But let me ask you the big whopper. And by the way, this religious leader called a scribe was not the first one to pose this question. See, these religious leaders enjoyed this mental gymnastics a lot. They had actually made something of a game out of the faith. 
And for them, it was all about figuring out great answers to great questions. This is what they delighted in. So they would sit around in coffee shops or I don't know what they drank back then, some kind of black tea, and they, they would sit around and they just duke it out all day long. And you know how, you, you've probably seen some of this, people sharing and talking, and they really didn't want answers. They just wanted a platform where they could show everyone else how clever and smart they are. I sometimes get that feeling listening to, uh, t- to talk radio, to listen, listening to political radio, and just thinking, you really don't care about anything, you just love showing how clever you can be. And that's really what this question was about for a lot of people. And he intended to stump Jesus with the one eternal, almost unanswerable question. See, here's why it was so hard to answer. The teachers of Israel believed that there were 613 distinct commandments in the Mosaic Law. 365 of them were thou shalt not, and 248 of them were thou shalt. So the negative commands seemed to totally outweigh the positive ones, and they loved slicing and dicing these in every possible way. How do you pick one out of 613 that's meaningful to everyone who hears it? And this was a test of genius and creativity. Well, Jesus answers, and he actually answers in a very typical way. He says, oh, you want the greatest commandment? It's this one. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, our, our God, the Lord is one. Now that's a little saying that the Jews called the Shema. Shema being the Hebrew word for hear, which is the first word of that verse. It was a very key verse for Jews because every faithful Jew, every morning and every evening would recite this as a prayer. Much in the same way that you might hear Muslims say there is, that, that there is only one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. They say that without necessarily meaning it deeply each time, but it's one of those acts of religious fealty that you just say it and you say it and say it until it becomes a mantra. And every self-respecting Jew understood that if you are a good Jew, the Shema is one of the core commandments of your religious duty. And so Jesus, it's a bit of a tricky kind of thing because he says, oh, you want the greatest commandment? He gives the Shema and most Jews would expect him to stop talking right there. I got it. You're, you're one of the thousands who say the Shema is the greatest commandment. But before letting this guy go, Jesus says the famous preacher line, but or and, which you guys probably don't like when you think it's winding down and there's a third point or a fourth point. It's wearisome. Jesus is the one who taught us that, all right? He says, listen, you think I'm going to stop there and I'm going to reduce all of this precious faith to a matter of religious duty. You would love that, wouldn't you? Because religion is something we can do. I can check it off of my little Franklin planner and I can be done doing God stuff. But I'm not going to make it so simple for you because at the heart of it matter is not simply that there is one God, which is true, or that he is our God, which is also preciously true but that this one God who is our God produces in everyone who is paying attention the natural response of loving Him. Who are we that this one true God should make Himself our God? It's not like we made Him our God by appropriating Him. He made Himself our God by reaching down and out to us. And it's an amazing truth to consider that God so loved us that He made us His people and He became our God. And if you understand that, the obvious great command is love this God with everything that is in you. Love this God with everything that you've got. 
And in case you missed the point, Jesus lays out very comprehensively, love him with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with your whole mind, and with your whole strength. Everything that is available to you, employ it in the quest of loving this God, who is the one true God, and who has made himself our God. And then, being the first and greatest preacher, Jesus also says to, to, to them, and I, by the way, I got one extra bonus point for you. You asked for the greatest command, but I can't say that without giving the second command. Because they are so rooted together, you cannot separate these concepts in the mind of God. If you love God, then you will love people. Because this God desperately loves people. And so he gives them the two greatest commands. And I wonder... If you have the opportunity to answer this question for an inquiring spiritual seeker, some person who's not that well-churched or not that religious comes up to you and says, Look, I'm a straight shooter. I'm a get-it-done kind of guy. So don't waste my time with all this other little fluffy stuff. Just tell me, what is the most important thing I'm supposed to do as a Christian? What is it? I only got time and energy and money for one thing. What am I supposed to do? I wonder how we would be tempted to answer that question. It would make for a very interesting Saturday afternoon's reflection. What do I think is the most important thing God wants? Now, do you realize that when you talk about commands in in plural form as general things, you're in the realm of authority and, and tasks and things like that. But when you talk about what is the greatest command... That's a way of saying, not what do you want me to do, but what is most important to you. It's something like the deathbed, last will and testament of a a dying parent to their children. The way of saying, you want, you know what, I've got a few breaths left in me. Let me tell you something I want from your life. Not because I want to control what you do, but because I want you to know what's important to me. I want you to know what really matters and what's most desperately on my heart because these may be the last chances I have to encapsulate it this way for you. Do you understand the heart of it? If if you understand what God most wants, it's probably explained by the way you live with Him. Your life is probably already a walking testimony of what is most important to God in your mind. So what would you say? Isn't it striking that the verb God uses is love? That's a very strange choice when most of us think of God as the cosmic boss of the universe. The one who calls us into his service as soldiers and makes us do all kinds of things for him like tuba city missions trips and grip and all this stuff. Isn't God the one who's sucking up all our time and our money and impressing upon us, robbing us of our joy, telling us who we can and cannot go out with? And isn't he the one who basically is the cosmic killjoy standing up in heaven, ruining our lives? making us feel guilty. And that's the way so many people think about God. And so it's such a strange thing to hear that when Jesus gives one response to the greatest command, it is to love God with everything. What he's saying is, I'm not going to give you a religious answer. I'm going to give you a relationship because that's the point of everything. If you die successful and have no relationships, you die having completely missed the whole point of showing up on this planet. Do you understand how many people go to the grave that way? They accomplish so many things and they're on their deathbed alone going, Hooray for me! I won! But they don't realize they lost big time. They missed the whole point. 
The primary verb in Jesus' command is to love. And so I want to ask you this question. Is that the greatest thing on your heart when you come to church or you sit down for quiet time? When you think about your relationship with God or your identity as a Christian, is love the, the first thing that beats in you, that makes you feel urgent like, I've got to do this? I think as a faithful Korean boy, I, I would be tempted to put in a primary verb like study or give or something like that. But love. What a messy, intangible, complicated, costly verb to have used. I would rather do a million things for you than have to love you because loving is so costly and so complicated and so hard to get a handle on sometimes. Don't you see a lot of people feed and clothe their children, but some of them never really learn what it is to love a child, really love a child. So we raise them like pets. We don't know how to love. Love is not easy, but it's the thing that God commands of us. So how do you love an invisible God? I mean, think about that for a second. You know, let, let me not do all the time. Think about how do you love a God you can't see? How do you even command something like that? Love me! All right? How do I begin? How many of you guys want to love God, but it gets hard sometimes? You want to, but you don't know how. Jesus gives us some clues in this greatest command, doesn't he? He says, let me tell you one way. Love him with your whole heart and soul. You know what that's getting after? That's getting after emotional love. And if you think about love as a tripod, think about anyone you love on this earth, you'll see that this tripod applies. There are three legs to love. There are the emotions, there are the thoughts, and there are the deeds that are wrapped up in love. In order to love you, I've got to feel something for you, I've got to think something about you, and I've got to do something for and with you. Apart from those things, I can't really stand that thing up. Do you understand? I mean, you would never set your camera on a monopod or, or, or bipod. Or you have, to have that third leg. It's got to stand stable. You can't have love without these things. And so he says, and this is a strange thing for God to lead with because it runs counter to my intuitive sense of who God is. The first thing God wants is our emotional connection with him. Heart and soul come first. He says, look, you know what I really want? I don't want you to be my faithful soldier before I want you to be my child and and the love of my heart. I want you emotionally to be wrapped up with me. But that doesn't really address the question, how do I do that, God? I can't even see you. How do I fall in love with a spirit? Well, maybe part of the answer will come from the observation I've made that certain little boys really love baseball. (laughs) Is he drunk? What are you talking about? Some little boys love baseball. And here's the thing. I don't think they're born loving baseball. Some guys are are wired that way. They kind of like baseball. Others like golf. But if you study a person's life fairly carefully, what you'll probably discover is most of the little boys who really love baseball have a daddy who really loves baseball, whose daddy made him sit sit in and watch game after game after game. And because this little boy loves his daddy, he watches carefully what turns his daddy on and he mimics the excitement. He has no clue what's going on. 
Red Sox win, White Sox win, and his dad is having some kind of apoplectic seizure. And this little five-year-old boy who has no idea what's going on looks at his dad and he wants to be pleased with his dad. And so he jumps up and down and he learns to be excited. He learns to sit through the game because he gets it. I bond with daddy when I watch baseball. And over time, with enough exposure to baseball, you start understanding the significance of the trades and the stats, and you become a lover of baseball. Now, what's interesting to me is in American culture, we're usually taught, do what you love. First, figure out what you love, and then do it. But you know what I also see in life and presented in Scripture is we're often led to love what we do. You know, we wait for the heart to be genuine and for it to drive our actions. But there are times when through obedient action, the heart follows very quickly. I think this is a very, very good biblical principle for us. A law of relationships that must be honored. You know, sometimes we stop trying in a relationship because we don't feel the same way we used to for that person. But it's amazing when you begin doing things, how the heart is drawn. How many of you guys have a newborn in your life now or in the last couple of years? Just raise your hand. So let me ask you something. Is your favorite thing in the world when you hear that baby cry in the baby monitor and it's 2.45 a.m. and you're having a great dream and you got to get up and try to console this crying baby? And how many of you fake death so your spouse will get up and heat up the milk and you act like... You just keep looking out the side of your eye, hoping and hoping the other person will get up. That's not fun. Nobody enjoys that. And if you're pregnant you, for the first time, let me tell you something. You, you've got a, a wonderful experience ahead of you. But what do you do? If you ignore it, you're going to have problems. But when you finally do get up, you say, you know, that's my child. I love them as a choice. I don't feel very loving. I feel like, what is your problem? Just sleep. Leave daddy alone. But you get up out of obedience and commitment. And you go to that crib. You pick that baby up. You're so bitter at being awake right now. But you know what happens as you hold that baby? A couple seconds later, there's that baby. And you, you look at him and your heart melts. And you go, man. And you sit in that chair and you talk to them about how they're going to go to Harvard and, you know, make you a really wealthy person someday. And I don't know what you talk to your baby about in the middle of the night. I try to brainwash mine into going into ministry, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, you hold them and you whisper things. And by the act of doing, the heart follows. It's a law of relationships we must understand. Some of us have drifted far from God because we lost our heart for him. And what you didn't realize is that as you walk towards God, the heart will follow. You know, definitely you know what's coming. I, I think one way that you fall in love with God is you read his letters. I've, I've mentioned this several times. I keep thinking I'm going to bring him in one time, but I've got a study Bible where in the, in the, the, the leather cover, I keep seven love letters from Jeannie that I, I read quite often. And why do I read those letters? I mean, she's right there. <laughs> I can call home and go, talk to me. Say something loving. I get it in real time. Why am I reading the letters? Because the letters speak to me. You know, we don't live in a culture of letters anymore. We live in a culture of verbal diarrhea, dumping, downloading, whatever's in my, my, my waiting room, just without any processing. Letters are patiently thought out expressions of what's really inside of our hearts. 
You see that? God wrote a letter. He didn't IM us. He didn't just give us some, some stupid little thing that was on his mind at that moment. He gave us something where the words were carefully chosen. And they are, they are fully reflecting who he is and what he feels about us. And we need to read that letter from God on a regular basis and let it speak to us. I think we ought to look at pictures. How many of you guys really are into t- to taking pictures and you have photo albums and stuff like that? Anybody like that? Anybody? How many of you guys can't stand people like that? What's the point? Why do we always stand, stay cheese? You know why we take pictures? To remember. And what's sad is a lot of people collect pictures and never look at them. That's why I love this thing my wife does with scrapbooking. It, it's interesting enough that it makes me flip through them all the time. My children look at her scrapbooks constantly, and I look over their shoulder and I go, oh, remember when you were so, so ugly and small and round and pudgy? And, you know, like, we look back at those days fondly. Remember when we lived in that house? Remember that dog we used to have? Remember this? Remember that? And have you noticed, we never take pictures of our bad days. How many of you in your picture album have a picture of the, of the, the piece of poop that your baby pooped out while you're giving him a bath and it was a terrible day and you had to clean it all up and disinfect it? How many of you take pictures of stuff like that? Oh, here's the day you came home late from dinner and I'd made your favorite meal and we had a big fight and I cried and we say, here, frown. <laughs> Who does that? What do you say with every picture? Smile. And we selectively record in our picture albums the pictures that remind us of the goodness of life. And we dwell on them. And if you only look at a, a family's photo albums, you would think they are the happiest people on God's green earth. Look, you're smiling all the time. You're in great places, partying all, always. You know why we do it? Because we, it's, it's helpful to the heart to selectively recollect those things which remind you that God is good and life is good. Now, some of us have a really bad habit. We selectively dwell on all the dark pictures. You're the one who would take pictures. Oh, here's that time I, I cut my arm open before the stitches. And look at my face. See how angry I am? That's what I love staring at. I love looking at the photos of my worst days and remembering and walking down memory lane. No wonder you're miserable. Your photo album sucks. It's filled with every memory that you should be forgetting. And instead of pulling out the good ones, you rehearse all the bad ones. The, the chronic complainer, the one who can't see any light at the end of the tunnel because they have only pictures of the tunnel in their life. If that's you, you need to change your heart by beginning to reminisce on all the memories God has deposited in your life where He showed up, where He answered the prayers. How many people say, Lord, I'm lonely, give me a spouse. Actually, on second thought, Lord, take them away. What is wrong with us? We have to remember the great days when the prayer was answered, when God was faithful, the longings of our hearts were given. That's how you fall in love emotionally. The same way you fall in love with anybody. Dwell on the things that make you want to draw closer. Let me move on. I'm going to speed up a little here. There's also the mind. He said, love God with your whole mind. That's intellectual love. Around my house, you often hear something like this. And Jeannie's so much better at this than I am. She goes, you know, you know what I love about you, Dave? You, and she fills in the blank with, 
you know, I give her so much ammunition. There's so many things to love about me. But she'll say stuff like that all the time, and it really builds me up. She goes, you know what I love about you, Dave? You're so good with the kids, or you always try to do the right thing. I never worry that you're going to take a shortcut. You're always trying, and it annoys her sometimes that I'm, I'm going overboard with ethical stuff. But she says, you tried, you're a decent man, and that makes me happy. And it's so important that she keeps verbalizing those things, even though she's thinking them and feeling them, because when you speak it, you're creating a mental image, a reality of who that person really is. You are saying things that are true of that person, and those statements frame in what you think that person really is. Now, because we're not a perfect family, if you hang around our house a little longer, you also hear stuff like, I can't stand you because you always do, or you never this. Now, that's against the rules in our house, but we break the rules all the time. We're not allowed to use words like always and never, but we always do it, and we never stop. <laughs> you know why that's not fair? Because nobody always does anything. They might do it a lot, but there's some good in that person. It's not like they never do it, it's just they don't do it as much as I wish they would. And when we start rehearsing those untruths about a person out loud, that also affects our mental picture of who that person is. Truth and falsehood are powerful forces in this universe, and we mismanage them way too much. What you believe about someone, and what you rehearse and form in the, this mental picture, that is a big part of how you will interact with that person in a relationship. And why I'm saying this is some of us have stopped loving God with our minds. We are ignoramuses when it comes to the truth of who God is. If we put a gun to your head, you could not write a five-page essay describing the character of the God who saved you, who you trust with your future eternity. And that's a dangerous place to be for us. If the one being who we are most responsible for knowing is a mystery to us, where can our lives possibly go from there? What picture must we carry around of God, and how is that affecting the way we relate to God? I, in, part of my counseling is so often telling people, you're wrong about God on that one. I know why you feel that way, but you need to stop saying that because it's just not true of Him. And if you keep saying it, you'll act like it's true and your relationship with God and your sense of well-being will go right down the toilet. Some people start believing God's unfair to them. God forgot about them. God doesn't love me as much as He loves my brother or my sister. That will never be true of God. But if you start reciting it, it will be true for you. You will start believing it, and it will absolutely affect the way that you relate to God. So how are we supposed to grow in intellectual love for God? How am I supposed to get to know God better? Well, one way is to listen to good teaching. Obviously, you know, you should read the Bible, okay? I got that out of the way. Read the Bible. But another way is to just listen to good teaching, like you're doing right now. And you know what? With the gift of the internet and the radio, there is such a wealth of good teaching out there. And do you realize that the, if I didn't take advantage of those, the only sermons that I would hear in my life are the ones coming out of my own pie hole. That's pretty annoying. Okay? I need to hear others preach to me. And so I seek it out on the internet and podcasts. I read blogs and I, I, I listen to things that nourish my soul. 
And I love hearing something true about God because it keeps building and reinforcing the right mental picture of who this God is. Do you know how many people are in despair and confusion today because they have wrong thinking about God that never got corrected and they're miserable for it? They're losing their friendships. They're losing their joy, their health because they have a wrong idea about God that cannot be corrected because they're not listening to anything that's true. They're just rehearsing the same lies they're comfortable with over and over, and it explains why their life feels the way it does. Listen to good teaching. It's out there for free. It's, the, it's a beautiful thing. I get XM radio in my car. I have to pay like 75 bucks a year to get it. And the two Christian talk radio stations are terrible. But K-Love and MBI are free, and they are filled with wonderful teaching. Please listen. Also read a Christian book. In fact, just read a book. But it'd be great if once in a while it was Christian. You know we are so functionally illiterate. But think about what a loss it is to us that we choose not to read more. You know, by the way, some of you, do you know the books are not just decorations, you know, in remodeling? Some wonderful shelves filled with books. Listen, books, when you open them up, are a treasure chest. They are the best minds expressing the best ideas with the best words. And they're given to you. Some people only have enough to write one good book in their whole life. And if you read it, you are getting the best fruit of an entire human life distilled in 200 pages. How can you pass that up? Unless you have every good thought that ever was worth having you are missing out on such an amazing treasure. And the more of these things you read, the more your mental image of God is fleshed out and you begin to know who He really is. How many of you guys have expressed disgust because somebody was all presumptuous about you and you're like, you don't know me like that. You don't know me at all, in fact. We love having that self-righteous indignation. It looks so silly, but you know, you don't know me. Like, it's so arrogant. But guess what? You've got some really strong feelings about God and you don't know him like that either. But you can. And it's time we committed ourselves to loving God with our minds. and Stop feeling our way like blind people and say, I'm going to open my eyes and let the light in. There is truth to be known about this God. And finally, Jesus says, love me, love God with all your strength. Beefcake's in the room. That's, that's your department right there. Yeah. Love him with everything in your muscles. This is kinetic love. This is a love that's about actions. And, you know, think about that tripod again. Imagine if someone said, I feel love for you. I know you and I love what I know of you. I just don't feel like doing anything for you. That would be kind of annoying, wouldn't it? Because somewhere along the way, the proof of the love as a sentiment is found in the deeds that we get. How do I know someone loves me? Well, quite often it's because they do things for me that they don't have to. They do things for me I would pay other people to do. They just do it for me because they want to. That's where love is so often proven, is in the deeds. Didn't you say all the time as a little kid, do you blank, 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 then prove it. Prove it. And God is in some respects saying that, although not with a snotty voice, but he's saying, look, if you really love me, it's going to have to involve your physical body at some point. I need your hands and your feet. I need your schedule. I need you. 
not just your thoughts and your feelings, but I actually need your flesh and blood as well. I made them, I purchased them, they're mine, I want them. How do you love someone kinetically? There's a million ways. By the way, these lists I'm giving you, these practical applications, they're not the end all. I'm just trying to seed your thinking. Here's one way. Travel together. Nothing will bond a friendship like a road trip, right? How many of you guys just love going on road trips with people? Family vacations in the car. Some of my best memories are my dad and mom packing us in the car with a bunch of food and a cooler. We're poor then, so we did these really ghetto vacations to places like Mammoth Cave and the Badlands. You know, I would love to go there now for photographs, but as a kid, you're like, this place stinks. How come we never get to go to Disney World, you know? My dad would take us out of the car. Look at the vast wasteland. I'm like, Dad, you're you're the worst. But you know what I loved is the word games we'd play in the car. Listening to my dad tell us lies about his Vietnam War exploits. And, you know, like, it's just, they're such rich memories for me. When you spend time going somewhere together, it's a really, really great thing for building that relationship. You know where God hangs out with our church every summer? In a little place in the middle of the desert called Tuba City. And some of you guys hear about it, you see the pictures, and you might be wondering in the back of your mind, what the heck goes on out there anyway? What what is that all about, this tuba city? Is it like a a place where instead of cactuses, you see tubas popping out of the sand? What is it? I'll bet you if you travel with God and go there one year, it would blow your mind. You would see God in a fuller way than you could before. Go to the places where God is hanging out. And that doesn't mean you have to go out of Illinois to do it. I mean, but what I'm saying is where you see God moving, go and check it out. Road trip with him. It will profoundly affect you. And what I love about our church is that our missions trips are for everybody. They're for families. We don't want to hear anymore. I have little kids. You can take little kids. They live, don't they? They survive the trip. They come home completely enriched for God. My son's character was radically transformed by going to Africa with me this year. Things we used to have such difficulty with him, God got a hold of him because he traveled with God and saw a part of God's big world and God became a little bigger to him. Now when I speak to my son, I say, you know what? Jesus this or God that. His eyes go wide because he knows this God of ours is bigger than Hanover Park, Illinois. Here's another way you you can love God kinetically. Just say yes. Say yes. I know that God has been tugging at some of you, and not so gently. He's been tugging at some of you through the annoying voice of some other leader at this church. We really need you. We're asking you to commit to something. And that, that lives in tension with your desperate desire to have a balanced life. Believe me, I know what that feels like. I really do. I've got a family. I'd sure like to have a home life. And I've managed to carve one out by the grace of God. But there is a tension that will always exist in us. I want to control my life, yet I hear God asking for all of me in some department. And I don't know how to hold those two things in tension. And the answer is you don't hold them in tension. You love God with everything you've got. And for some of you, that's where you are right now. You, there's undisputed. You love God emotionally. You know God intellectually. But something is holding you back from giving God this thing He seems to want from you because you're afraid of what that would introduce into your life. 
the loss of control, the chaos, the physical discomfort, the inconvenience, the loss of freedom. These are not easy things to live with. I don't speak casually about them. But it's good for me to say this to you without any qualifiers. God wants all of us. And there has to be an element in our Christian followership that says at some point in my life, I gave God everything. I think about yesterday when we had the the basketball tournament for Tuba City. I won't even tell you who won. God's anointed one. But you know, I will tell you this. We played in such a way, all of us, that we left nothing on the court. I'm hopped up on three Advil today because of that. And if I, I, my wife offered me Vicodin in the morning and said, Honey, thank you, but i got to preach. But you know what? I would have loved to have taken something with narcotics because I am in serious, serious pain. But there's a beautiful feeling that comes with that kind of spending yourself. I didn't bring anything home. Nothing was left. I spent it all. I gave it everything. And that's what God is after with us. I didn't sort of dabble in this or that. I didn't control everything on my terms. There were places in my life where God wanted everything and I just gave it to Him. You want this? It's yours. I'm terrified of what this will bring, but who do I belong to at the end of the day? I am yours, God. And in one place in my life, I just need to learn, I'm going to say yes to you with nothing left over for me. I will love you kinetically through service by saying that dangerous word, yes, yes. That's a word God's been longing to hear from some of you, to the insistent call of the heart and the invitation of your leaders to give God something that you alone can give right now. Let me wrap up here. It should not be missed that God doesn't say, you know, I, I want you to kind of love me emotionally a little and you know, kind of know a few things about me and do some stuff with me and, and that's what I want. I mean, that's not what you said in marriage, right? Those of you who are married, you didn't say, look, among all your other boyfriends, I want the most time from you. And you know, what you're saying is, I want everything. You don't get another husband. I'm it. I'm sorry, but I'm it. This is what you get forever. And I want this to be exclusive. Listen to the word that's repeated. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind and all your strength, so that nothing is left over for anyone. This is, this is the, the invitation to every Christian. God is asking for all of you. Everything you've got. Because He knows in the end it doesn't, it doesn't benefit Him as much as it benefits you. To be oriented with God relationally on those terms brings life to you. And because He cares about you, He will not lower that bar for you. And this is the next step for us. I'm asking you lovingly, I'm challenging you with everything in my pastoral heart. Do not walk away from this message with some lame, safe, acceptable next step like, fine, I'll uh, buy a Bible tomorrow. You know that's not, other texts talk about that. This text is not about some tentative little baby step dipping your toe into the pool. This is about saying, in one place in my life, I want to experience that all of me, love for God. And some of you, you're okay in the emotional department and you know God, but you need to act for Him. 
Others of you do so much, you know so much, but you feel nothing in here. And maybe some of you are busy doing and you feel great, but you don't know why you're doing any of it. You're clueless. Wherever your tripod has the shorter leg, that's the place I believe God is saying to you, try something as a next step. That represents a huge plunge of faith. An all-in, everything-I've-got expression of love to this God. And I wanna, I'm not, I'm not going to give you any more suggestions about what that is. I believe the Holy Spirit will tell you if you really listen. But I believe that's what God is asking of each Christian in this room today. Love me in some part of your life with everything you've got. Now, that's hard. That's messy. It's not as easy as religion that's God's answer. It's the one we're meant to live with. And if we respond to him, you will find that in that messy, complicated, expensive answer, you'll find your greatest joy and you'll find your true life. There's a reason it says at the end, nobody dared ask him any more questions. Because every time this dude opens his mouth, life gets more complicated in some ways. I just want religion. Leave me alone with that. I want to be comfortable where I am. In my spiritual journey. I've got everything tidied away. No one can ask more of me than I'm willing to give. I'm okay with this. I go to my small group. I come to church. I've got it all squared away. Don't bother me. I'm religious. What else do you want? And Jesus says, no, listen to my voice. I want all of you. That place of comfort and safety you've settled in. Where you've defined the terms and trained everyone around you. Don't ask. Don't come. Don't chase. Leave me alone. And this God of yours says, no, I will not let you settle in that place because that's a dry and barren land. I call you out and tell you without any ambiguity, what I want, your God says, is all of you. And he will not give you peace if you try to settle and pitch your tents in that place of safety and control and half-hearted love for him. He will not let you have peace in that place. It is not good for you to settle there. I don't say that out of a vengeful spirit. I'm certainly not trying to manipulate a bigger workforce or more offering. I'm not that complicated of a person. I'm an idiot. All I'm saying is, look, I just know this about God. He loves you. He wants all of you. And if you give it to him, you'll find yourself. You'll have peace. And this place you're trying to be is no place to be. If that speaks to you, listen to the voice of God. He wants all of you. This is what we're reaching up to, straining after is, God, I want to love you with more of me because you deserve that and you're worthy of it. Amen? Let's love God with everything. That could be said of our church, I will die so happy that we loved God with everything that we had. Let's pray together. You know, someone once sent me an email, and this person said, I'm tired. I like Harvest, but I'm tired because you swing for the fences. Every sermon is so black and white, so all or nothing. Can't you give us like a medium sermon once in a while? And I try, but I just don't see that in Scripture. I really think God is one of these intense beings. 
And I think he understands that a lukewarm life is not really a life worth having. A divided heart is not a heart worth having. You find your life when everything is put in. And so he doesn't lower the bar because it would be bad for us if he did. So be gracious as you hear me rant and rave because I believe what's on God's heart for all of us this morning is that at the end of the day, there should be nothing left over. It should all be God's. We should love him. Everything we have. And I want you to think about your own love tripod in your life and which leg needs a little extending. That's the area where I believe God is calling you to an all-in expression of love for him. It's going to take guts. So in this moment of silence, listen for him. Just listen. sense that some of you may need to just keep listening and praying and that's great you can do that for others who are ready I would ask if you would just look up and, and, and rise to your feet and let's sing this last song as an act of worship to God together
we're used to doing things a little bit and part way. But today we've heard your voice calling out to us. And the bar you've set is that you want nothing less than all of us. That sounds so hard. And so God, give us eyes for you. Help us to see how much easier it becomes when we see who you really are and what you're worth. Make us people who love you emotionally and know you with our whole minds. And in places in our lives, we've given you everything that we have, nothing left for ourselves. I pray that you will teach us that. For as we love you like that, we believe we will discover ourselves as well. Jesus, you once taught that whoever gives up his life will find it. And we claim that promise. We obey that command today. Help us to do it, Lord. It may be said of each one of us at the end of everything that one thing we did was press on and strain ahead and reach forward to a greater relationship with you, with our fellow believers, with the world around us. Teach us to reach, Lord, after that which is worth reaching for. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face of friendship towards you and give you peace, real peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit of God, be blessed. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.